Hello and welcome to Talk the Line, the brand new podcast from the line of Best Fit. And we're having a brilliant time. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast every week or so. I interview a musician about the thing that makes them tick, about their passion, their obsession, not just their new album campaign. So far, we've spoken to the likes of Shura and Johnny Flynn. And this week, I'm going to be talking to a very charming young man. His name is Ben Gregory. He is from German descent, but he is also from Hampshire. With his two friends, Frank Wright and Harris Macmillan, they formed Blynavon at the age of 14 to cover Muse's Knights of Cydonia at a school performance. I met them years ago, just as they're about to release their debut single, Into the Night via Transgressive, when they just all had long hair, skateboards, and used to run around the Transgressive office, terrorising everyone in there and making me sit down and say, coming up next, it's Family Guy over and over again for them. But they have grown into wonderful young men. They played their first London show back in 2012 and then they took a break. They stepped back. They concentrated on their A-levels. But they are finally releasing their debut album, That's Your Lot, a collection of 12 intensely personal songs that explore friendship, sadness, hope, love held and lost, and all the confusions of youth in a world that is slowly revealing itself. They work with producer Jim Abyss, known for his work with the Arctic Monkeys and Adele, and Ben told DIY magazine, the way the track listing's looking, for me personally, it's all over the place, in the way it jumps between time periods. Listeners would have no idea which one's about me being sad about being 16 and which one's about me being terrified about turning 20. Ben is a sweet young man. He's effeminate, analytical, shy and articulate and live you can expect to see him somewhere in the middle of the throes of the audience with his guitar stuck up in the air. He's influenced by the works of Herman Hesse, Evelyn Waugh and the songs of Elliot Smith. In this podcast we are talking about Hesse, about German literature and speaking a different language. Yeah, that is richtig. So we're ta- are we talking about German literature today? German literature and speaking German and studying German, all the things I would be doing with my time if I weren't in a band. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, how... Because when I knew you, you were still doing GCSEs, I think, when I first met that you. That is when we first met. So yeah, I was doing... I went to like a language um, school, so we all did like German A-level when we were like six, well no, like AS when we were like 16, because it was like the special like skill of the school and everybody really good teachers for it. So, which is really great because it's kind of quite a rare thing nowadays to have schools that encourage people like that. So me and all my friends did, did German early and like I got really into it and kept it on at college. Um, so you were, yeah, you are from Hampshire. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. But I'm you, yeah, so you were in school in Hampshire. Were you in school with the rest of Blind Avon? Yeah, we went to a school called Bowhunt in Liphook in Hampshire. Oh, wow. <laughs> was it like a fancy school where you wore...? No, it was like a really normal state oh, okay. school. So For how some reason, it... it was just really good at languages, and okay. they just encouraged people in that regard, which is really awesome. Because I was at school quite a long time ago, and we did French. Like, if you were good at French, then you did French and German or something like that. If you were, like, mm. fairly good at maybe just fairly good at English, then you took French and German and then you yeah. could choose which to take at GCSE. And I hated German. It's a toughie. I understand why everyone's put off it because it's like you're studying the same things you're doing in English lit, but it's in a different language <laughs> and reading anything takes like 30 times as long. Do you ever think <laughs> that like the subject, the languages that we get offered at 
on the curriculum are kind of like languages that were never really used that often. I suppose like, it's quite outdated. They've just kind of stuck with the classic three for a long time. But I don't know for me, I've got like German family and everything, so it was pretty ideal. And I like a lot of the cities there, like okay. Berlin and Hamburg. And so you have German family? Yeah, my grandmother was from Dresden and escaped across the border after the Second World War and then ended up moving to Wales, <laughs> wishing yes. at my grandfather. So Not Blynavon? Not Blynavon, oh. no, like Haverford West. <laughs> oh, but my, my family are from Fishguard. Sick, okay. Did so, you know that Jack from Falls, his family are from Fishguard as well? Yeah, I saw, yeah, he paid something the other day and I was like, well, I know where that is. I think it was about Haverford West, I was really confused. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my really awesome German grandmother from Dresden, kind of, I remember like going to visit, visit her in Wales uh, like the five hour drive and I was like oh god I hope I don't do any long drives in my life after this <laughs> I'm on the road all the time um, but yeah like bringing like I couldn't like speak so well back then but like bringing her my German books and like showing her my vocabulary and stuff so I suppose yeah I was pretty inspired from her being so good at that stuff wow so I go myself went to college kept it on um, had a pretty inspiring teacher called Angela um, so you weren't in one of those schools where you called teachers by the first name at college, you do. College, so, really? So yeah, like yeah. I'm I guess like, it's like twelve, thirteen. When you're, no, I, I'm like still, I'm like friends with teachers from school on Facebook, and I still call them Miss. If they were, insert surname. You can't call if you were really friendly with them, like a music teacher who was really important to the band, Mr. Overly, you would just call them Neil. Really? You'd like rocking at lunchtime, you'd be like Neil, can we listen to Jesus Christ Superstar again? And you'd be like, yeah, right, sure. Oh, no, I never college, got that. At college, you started to call them the first name, yeah, for some reason. Hmm. Don't know. Feel powerful. <laughs> Feel like an adult. So what did you do? You, you did GCSEs. What did you do at GCSE? Oh, like all the ones you have to. Well, I mean, yeah, but like languages. German. Oh, just German, like history. Oh, just German? Yeah, I didn't do any other languages. I just stuck oh, okay. with one because I thought I'd rather get really good at one than like half good at a few, you know. But some people can do it more, I suppose. But and then, then yeah. you did it at AS and A-level? Yeah, so then I did my A-level in that college. And then I was going to go to university to do... German and English, um, which I hope I do at some point when I've got the time, but not right now. Oh my God, you're going to be a mature student. I know, it's going to be really <laughs> awkward. I'm the guy that's like, no, I've done all my going out. Like, don't worry, guys, you go and have fun. I'll see you at the lecture tomorrow. You're going to be like that weird, like, 35-year-old guy in lectures yeah. and there's all these 18-year-olds like, who's he? I am actually quite scared of that because I need to go. He used to be a rock star, but I don't believe him. I don't want to be the like outcast. a nerd. <laughs> well, I know it's quite badass to be a mature student and just like, hang out at the pub instead of like going and getting wasted all the time. But um, Would you actually study German though? Would you, or would you study something? I was going to do German and English Lit and I still might do that at some point. Because um, it was all pretty useful for their music as well, it was something quite positive about it. Because I was really, really into maths as a kid and especially at college and I, I could spend like six hours straight just doing that. And then it was really good at calming me down because I was so like, nervous and weird at the time but then I don't know I wanted to change and do some stuff that would kind of inspire my artistic output a little bit more perhaps <laughs> <laughs> just so, a posh boy aren't <laughs> well you're on the right record label it's a posh boy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry transgressive <laughs> fair enough um, so when did the kind of interest in German literature come about? Was that because you could start practicing your German by reading it or was it just because you were always surrounded by you know, German culture growing up? I suppose, um, so we'd study, like the texts we'd study in A-level weren't 
so interesting. We did like a really amazing film called Das Leben der Anderen about a Kishtazi man that um, kind of falls in love with someone that he's observing and like helps them not get in any trouble for their like um, anti-state literature they're writing. And that was amazing. But then I think out of that, I started to visit Berlin and made up the friends there. And someone told me to read Hermann Hesse all the time. And then I read like three of his books. And to be fair, like they're all kind of the same story. They're all called they're all buildings for a man. So like, um, just kind of like youth development, like realizing your place in the world and understanding more stuff. And they follow like, because novels only really have a few kind of narratives that they follow, and it's just all different pieces in there. Um, but yeah, it means that every time I don't know, you're really inspired to seek a greater truth. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> so. How many times did you go to Germany? Did you go to Germany as a child with your family or was it when um, in your teens you had friends there? <laughs> I went to I went to Berlin once with my dad to go to the um, like Athletics World Championships <laughs> when yes. Usain Bolt ran 958. I was there when he um, when he broke the world record that still remains. That's like the first time I went to Berlin, which is pretty funny. <laughs> um, and then I started to go back. Like I, I was taking a gap year to college to like hang out and decide what I was doing in my life and try and make my band work out and it's taken a bit longer than that um, but then I used to go to Berlin like every now and then I made lots of nice friends out there who were like properly bilingual and like helped me a lot some of them from Luxembourg actually which is quite a strange place to be from like a lovely young girl called Ellie who like taught me loads of German and I just used to stay with a girl called Stella who I met when um we did a few shows of war paint like back in 2014 or something like that. And I didn't know anyone in Berlin really. And I put an advert on Facebook like, hi, um, on the blind app. And like, hi, anyone in Berlin? Like, reckon you can put me up for a week or something. And Stella, like an absolute legend, didn't know me at all. Was like, yeah, you can come stay with Stella, me. Stella, the drummer from war paint? No, no, different Stella. Different oh. Yeah, sorry. I don't think she lives in Berlin. Um, I thought that was just like the biggest underplay of a, of a story there. Where, no, no. It was where so, you were like, we did some shows with war paint and then, uh, yeah, Stella just put me up. No, it was it was um, someone that was a fan of war paint who saw our band, liked our band, and then, um, yeah, saw my advert, which is a very, very sweet thing to do when you don't know at all. So I had a nice place to stay because I didn't really have any money for like hotel or whatever. And it's kind of... It's weird because you go on a trip to try and learn a language. So what you want to do is none of the like cultural stuff, really, visiting museums or whatever. You just want to like chew the fat with your German friends and sit around. So I kind of did that. Went to like a Kate Kolwitz, um gallery, which was really awesome, but mainly just drank Sternies <laughs> and um, yeah, spoke a bit of German. That was a good time for me. And then how were you introduced to Herman Hess? Was it just in the pub one night over? Well, when I left, so Stella became like one of my best friends. And then um, when I left, she gave me a copy of Herman Hess's Siddhartha with a little, like a really, really lovely note in it saying how nice it was to have me and stuff. And I went home and read that. And, and you yeah, read it in the original German text? I read it in German. Like that, you have to kind of appreciate, which is quite a difficult thing to get used to, you're not going to understand every word, and there might be like whole pa like paragraphs that you struggle with. But if you spend like you could spend millions of hours opening a dictionary every every other moment, so you kind of have to get through it, and make sure you like know what's going on, and then look up really important words. Um, so I did that, and then kind of got better and better at it, and that was the easiest way to keep German up. And I don't really have people I can speak to all the time at home, 
So she gave me that book and then I read some of his other stuff, realized that they're fairly similar stories, but somehow they're equally exciting every time because a lot of it's like, really shocking and really confusing, which is quite, so you're reading it and you think you're making loads of mistakes with your German because all this strange stuff happens. Like Kafka as well, I read um, Die Verfandlung, like Metamorphosis, and <laughs> do you know that book? I, I think I saw it as a play once and it was like on a chessboard or something. That's an interesting interpretation. I think I saw it at, um, at the Edinburgh Fringe one year when oh, I was cool. in uni. And I, yeah, I remember thinking to myself, I'm a student at university. I'm going to go to a Kafka play and then literally not understanding a fucking thing that was yeah, going on. Yeah, but you understand that it's like pretty out there. So yeah. I was reading that. Like, I remember I spent like hours at the library at college. Yeah, like thinking I'm making loads of mistakes because his dad's like throwing an apple and he gets lodged in his back. And I'm like, why does that slowly kill him? <laughs> it's actually the worst way to learn German. Yeah, yeah. But really, like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, I've, if I'm like particularly keen to adore people because they're German. I've always like wanted to be a little bit more German, but I don't know, a lot of my favorite writers come from there now, which is So who else cool. apart from Herman Hesse? Um, so there's Kafka and then I, I read a few little um, crime novels by a guy called Friedrich Dürrenmatt. Um, and it was kind of like simpler stuff, like I suppose Sherlock holmes kind of stuff, but a lot more straightforward, which was really great because it's like, right, this narrative is like understandable. I'm not making any mistakes and properly threading, so I'm going to keep, I need to keep keep going, which was, that was really fun. That was like a good way of casually keeping up without frying my brain. Um, and then after that, I spent a really, really long time trying to understand Rilke's um, sonnets to Orpheus, <laughs> which are like so fantastically beautiful, but very difficult for a non-German speaker. Like if you, I read them again in English and I was like, mate, what's going on? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not any kind of expert there, but I you read some guys' dissertation about it. You should Laura Marling. Yeah. She's a big fan of Rilke. Is she? Yeah, she talks about him loads. I should do that, because I bumped into it at the train station the other day. Aww. Lovely lady, um, and I did not know this. Point of common interest. Mm. So her whole reversal of the muse thing, her like podcast series about the lack of women in the production space, mm. is all like based around when she was when she really got into Rilke and was reading loads of Rilke and then read the story around Rilke and he had um, he had like a muse. He had this woman who he was like obsessed with, but she like she died and then he wrote all the sonnets. But... Oh, no, it was something like I oh, see. This is where I'm just really letting myself down as someone who literally, like, like, Laura starts talking and I'm, like, nodding, but there's just, it's just going over the top of my head 90% of the time. Same thing to me, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was something it like, he was, like, fixated with this woman, or he married her and then she refused to consummate the marriage. Oh, shall I Google it? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Sometimes it's just good to Google things. Lou Andrea Salon. Have you heard of her? I have not. Okay, so in 1897 in Munich... Uh, Reina Maria Rilke met and fell in love with the widely travelled intellectual woman of letters, Lou Andreas Salon. Rilke changed his first name from Rene to Reina at Lou's urging because she thought that <laughs> name to be more masculine, forceful and Germanic. 
His relationship with this married woman with whom he undertook two extensive trips to Russia lasted until 1900. But even after their separation, Lou continued to be Rilke's most important confidant until the end of his life. That's pretty, pretty bad. How cool is that? So the person I was thinking So this is of. the person that, that, that Laura Marling's obsessed with, Lou Andreas Salon. And she was the one who said, I'm not your muse, which is where she gets the name of us the muse from. My girlfriend said it to me the other day, and I was like, that's with me. <laughs> oh, my God. She was like, she was like, um... You're like the living Rilke. She was like, oh, <laughs> you think I'm your muse, and you're writing these songs about me, but really, you're just writing songs about you, and you're using me as, like, a vessel, aren't you? And I was like, God. This was on our, this was on our first date. She wasn't my girlfriend, and I was like, after someone said that, I kind of have to see them again. So then, <laughs> yeah. then wrote her loads of songs... Like one song that had the lyric, um, you're not amused, just what I used to paint a different portrait of myself and send it to her. <laughs> She's my girlfriend. So yeah, pretty good. Um, oh my God, look at that intellectual foreplay. I know, mate. She's unstoppable. <laughs> um, but the person I was thinking of was a young lady called Vera Okama, who apparently was a playmate of Rilke's daughter Ruth, and he dedicated the Summer Orpheus to oh. her as like a grave marker. So, yes, different, but there we go. Uh, so the the so Rilke and Hess, and who was the crime writer that you mentioned? Friedrich Dürrenmatt. Do you know much about their histories or their personal stories, or or how they're kind of viewed as writers in Germany? Um. Not a lot. I know a little bit about like Hess's backstory, but because um, it's, it's, I don't know, he's done all sorts of bits. Like he started to just want to completely remove himself from the world and sit around and walk and just write little pieces of prose about what he was saying. So there's this really amazing book that I found. This was in English called mm. Wandering. It's like a little collection of his um, oil paintings that he did. No, sorry, we were talking about watercolour paintings that he was doing. Um, when he moved to some weird village in the mountains in like the 1920s or something, and just started doing little watercolor paintings and convinced himself he should give up writing and just just do that. But then he still kept writing his little bits in his diaries and whatever. So this came out. I just meant like the, the crime writer Dorschmond. I'm saying that completely wrong. Dorschmond. Dorschmond. Sorry. But like the crime writer. Like, is, is it kind of like you're reading it because you oh. found this writer and then in, you go to Berlin and you're like. Oh, I've just been reading so much Dermat, and everyone's like, it's like you've just walked over here and been like, oh, I'm so deep into Patricia Cornwell right now. Oh, I think the thing that's funny is that I think I read somewhere that um, he was just really short on money, so wrote wrote the crime stories because he knew they'd be like big sellers. <laughs> that. And then he had he had some like really serious plays, like this one called like Odendam or something, which is like the visit of the old lady. Something mm. like that, um, which is like all about money corrupting people and the justice system and stuff. Which I'm trying to read at the moment, but struggling a bit. If I'm honest with you, it's been so long. And then, but that got really famous, and he was doing quite well. But I think there was a point in his life where he just needed the money, so just kind of. Um, what's another way of saying? Sold out. Yeah, just like did some little crime novels because it was a bit of a laugh, really. <laughs> but I mean, very entertaining. So. Good on him. Yeah, Why can't and good you do for a crime you. novel, you know? Good practice. Yeah, it's, it's he, his writing was so easy that like young English boys could do it. So good <laughs> for him. And 
Hess. Hess had quite an amazing life. I was, I was reading up on it before our chat. Mm. And he he was like had like um, missionary parents yeah. from India who just left him in Germany. I didn't know that. Or like his mother maybe was Indian and just left him in in Europe, and then yeah he grew up and was like super, um, in, like super fiercely intellectual, fiercely intelligent, like to the point where he was like severely depressed by the time yeah. he was six. That's what a lot of his his characters are, mm. <laughs> like young people that are far too bright for their own world, and then guide other people into a greater understanding. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. So probably sees a lot of himself in it. Because Demian, one of his books was it's about a young boy called Emil Sinclair, and when it first came out, it didn't have his name on it or anything. It just said it was about an autobiography by this young young boy, like finding his place in the world. So, which is kind of a cool thing to do. But the reason it didn't have his name on was because. Um, he w- he wouldn't he couldn't be published in Germany at the time because he'd come out as being anti-fascist, and it was during the rise of the Nazis. I didn't know that. No, I know he's got a fascinating story. So he he was like one of the biggest names in like German literature in the run up like out of the I think during the First World War or going into during the First World War I think he heard um, he tried to go in for military service because he saw all his like other um, artistic contemporaries going yeah, in yeah. To, 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 to serve, but he wasn't allowed because he had bad eyes. Yeah, so they wouldn't yeah, let him I in the military. That, so he guarded foreign prisoners. And then I guess he kind of, you know, had, had, I mean, he was already fiercely intelligent, but also, you know, saw the human side of war. And so he wrote a piece about, I think in when the, during the rise of the Nazis, wrote a piece saying that everyone should just get along essentially. Kind of like a really beautiful poem about everyone getting along. Like this could be completely terribly wrong, but it's, it's something along these lines. And then he was just completely derided. Mm-hmm. And there was you know, just such backlash from the German public against him because he tried to, he tried to make, make the enemy sound human and tried to, to naturalise the enemy. and tried to, he, I think he was just trying to do a nice thing. And yeah. just got I mean, forced out the country and couldn't work there anymore. There's a pretty severe trail of people that happened to, like after the Second World War, when East Germany was established and stuff. There was like such a massive group of poets and writers with all their yeah, literature against the state that were just shut up so severely. Like there was a guy called Wolf Biermann that I, liked it. I did a project on at school. This folk singer um, had a song called Vatanicht auf Besser Zeiten. It's like, don't wait on better times. So it'd be like a rallying call to the people to try and, you know, get up and do something about the situation, but it's pretty difficult. And he wrote all these really, really, really amazing songs. And then they just said, like, yeah, you go. And he was just <laughs> expelled. And then there was like a massive uproar against it. But um, what do you think it is about his work that made you want to keep reading him or, re- or, or to talk about him over? other um, writers? I don't know. It's hard for me to judge because it's in German, but like his turn of phrase was like so subtle and just some of his descriptions like stuck in my head for such a long time that I had to like kind of steal his stuff and use it in songs. Like there's a line in Demian, I think, that's just like, I drank, like when she spoke to me, I drank her voice like the sweetest wine. And I don't know what it is about that quote that inspired me so much, but it was just such 
an original simile. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, it was, it's like, just properly creative when, and romantic, which is really, really my vibe. It sounds like that Joni Mitchell song. Which where she's one? like, I could drink a case of you. Yeah. And I'd still be on my feet. Do you think Joni Mitchell likes Herman Hess? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think she does, yeah. 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 How did you become such a romantic, such a young romantic, <laughs> reading poetry and, um, and introspective German literature? It's sort of because I was such a non-thinking mathematical robot for such a long time which is really weird for me to think back on, but like that used to be kind of my way out of being troubled by anything, just to study maths and, cause you can kill so many hours by doing that and kill so many thoughts as well, which is a sad thing, but it's like the only thing ever in my life has properly been able to shut my brain up. If I'm trying to read something, I still, I drift away and worry about stuff. But if I was like solving little puzzles, I could just, you know, get through it, which is why it was so great. But then, I don't know, I started to feel like I was a little bit limited. I wanted to find a bit more beauty. When you talk about Hess, most of his narratives being fairly similar. Mm. And, and from what but... I've incredibly briefly read, um, most of them seem to be semi-autobiographical or play with the themes of autobiography. What, what do you mean? So, I mean, I read a Wikipedia page about him and <laughs> it said that a lot of his novels kind of play with the concept of autobiography or follow that sort of narrative. What, in that they're in the first person? Yeah, and they're like telling a life story of someone. And yeah. isn't his, his most okay, famous Okay, for sure. Sorry, I know what you mean. Yeah, they are yeah. all so solidly focused on one person's journey and so inside their heads that it feels like it must have been so reflective of his experiences because of how personal and how like accurately personal so many of the moments are. But I guess it's hard to say whether that's just because he's a really brilliant writer, but it's probably more than that. It's probably because of some level of autobiography, but he, he just, I don't know who it was, and maybe there must have been some person in his life that like took him under their wing and inspired him totally and made him discover all these amazing things because that's like such a running theme in his novel. There's always like a guide that takes someone that's clouded but has loads of potential and shows them this whole other way of thinking. It's all about like, I think it's called like the shine belt in Demian, which is like the like the seeming world, like what we believe we're experiencing and like all this greater stuff around it that we need to find and, you know, discard material things and see beauty and poetry, that kind of stuff. Um, which, yeah, it's a pretty, yeah, like, like I said, there are only so many like structured novels that can be written and he chose to do this one, but, uh, where was I? Yeah. Do you think that's part of, but I, what I was kind of going to finish on there with was 
it, it'll tag on there. Was do you think that part of the reason that you're so attracted to his writing is because it is that like soul searching? Yeah, it's perfect. Like for, kind of like introspective, self-involved to a certain extent. It's like young romantic kids that believe I don't know, like struggling through just being a young person, which can be so banal, and wanting to find something more beautiful to focus their attention on and seeing how all the other people in his novels can be inspired and then thinking, oh, maybe I'll find this person that can lead me this way or maybe I am this person, which is quite sweet. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been a long time. Do you think it's embarrassing being incredibly romantic? You keep giving me this look where you're like, No, I'm more embarrassed that I just sound like I just don't know what I'm talking about, which is true to certain extent. I just, you know, read these and thought they were pretty great. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I haven't spoken about it for quite a while now. But um, Did you have a kind of period where you just digested his novels? Yeah, it was like a few years ago. It was just like all I would do. Just And it's when we were were like making a demo record and um, doing a lot of writing for, for... for the album and I just made sure that I was reading his stuff the whole time because it was like, yeah, it just really got me. Um, but then since then, I, I hadn't for a while and then recently some young German girls come to quite a lot of our shows and they're like, oh, I need to bring you a copy of Narcissism Goldman, which you can read. So I think they're giving it to me on Friday in Brighton and then I'll be able to talk about it much better. But um, yeah, you said, is it embarrassing to be young and romantic? Is that what you said? Or just yeah, to to uh, or to speak with such um, a, a kind of almost like a like romantic naivety. In yeah, it, it's, just, of, it's quite. Be- I think is quite beautiful. What to find it embarrassing? No, no, to do so. Okay. Yeah, I just I'm always terribly worried of sounding cliched or pretentious, so I kind of giggle at the end so no one takes me seriously, which is incredibly sad. Um, <laughs> and. Maybe after this, I'll get over that. No, no, it's fine. I've ended so many sentences with, just kidding. Yeah. yeah. It's, I don't know, it's like, I guess maybe where I'm from, it was kind of frowned upon a little bit to be, to want to be like super artistic and romantic and write poetry and all this stuff. So trying to talk about it's a little bit like, like, frowned upon to be a young romantic which is why it's so convenient the job I found myself in because I can just like wear a suit or wear a dress and do whatever and wear loads of makeup and it's completely acceptable but then for some reason still if I do that in the street I'll probably get looked at loads and called a puff (laughs) yeah forget what you're supposed to look like and just just mess about a bit, be a bit free and fun with it. I just like being silly. That's kind of all I seek in life is to be a bit ridiculous sometimes. That's what your 20s are for. Yeah. And the rest of it. And your 30s. (laughs) Um, Did you want to talk any more about Steppenwolf? Uh, Have we passed that? No, we can. Um, Just from from it coming from a, a, is it like a like, so it was like parody of an autobiography. So it was written as if someone had like discovered a manuscript that was like in the centre of it and has like a preface. Right. And leading on to this man, Harry had a his his, his um like the manuscript of his autobiography. Um which is just a really great trick to suddenly make things far more personal, like with the Anderson Clare thing for, for Demian. 
Um, because when novels are about such internal torment, like Tess Devenpolf is, when you are led to fully believe the narrator is, you know, much easier to accept. Um, so yeah, that's just, it's just pretty much like, I remember like listening to, this is, I don't know, I don't know why I've gone to this, but I used to really love the band Ice Age. Oh yeah. And I remember in one of the songs, there's just a lyric that's like, to be split between existence. Um, and then I was like, okay, he's definitely like a massive Herman Hesse fan. And I spoke to my friend about it that like knows him and he was like, yeah, sometimes we go to the bar and he would just like sit in the corner and just read Herman Hesse on his own. And I was like, okay, sick. <laughs> um, so yeah, because it's just like, which I try to incorporate in my record quite a lot, just like two sides to your personality and one that's like breaking out and one that's like fitting in, you know, which is like the wolf in this man who's, you know, is that how you say it? Herman Hesse? Herman Hesse, yeah. Okay, I've been saying it wrong the I think everyone in England says Herman Hesse, which is how you would say it if you were. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, the internal struggle. Yeah, so... The wolf and the man. Like, you're the front you put on in society and to fit in and everything, and then, like, the secret outrageous thoughts you have and the ridiculous things you want to do and the wolf that you want to be, which is pretty poignant when you're, like, a young middle-class boy from a town in Hampshire <laughs> 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 so he can get on stage and just be like this ridiculous figure of entertainment instead of walking around the street trying to make sure no one's like staring at him mm. which is kind of how I feel all the time. I grew up fairly near where you grew up I think I was like sorry but like the Hampshire border. That's right where I live. Yeah so where did you grow up? In uh, Camberley. Yeah yeah I know where that is. Yeah. That's like, only like half an hour away, I think. It's just, I mean, people still live there. But just <laughs> like, just felt like such a culturally dead town. Especially, I mean, actually, especially now, but like I would, like my parents have moved back to Wales and my like best friend from school lives in San Francisco, actually. And so I literally have no reason to go back there whatsoever. I have my parents there, but... I mean, everyone else has left. Mm. All my friends are at universities in different towns, so I get back there and occasionally Frank is around. Harris is sometimes there, sometimes in Brighton. And it's like, Christ, like, it's lovely to go see my mum and have dinner every now and then, but I can't be there anymore. But um, it's that thing where you, I, I thought I was being very provocative. I mean, the saving grace, I think, for me growing up in Camberley was there was a, a rock club there called the Agincourt. Which, we don't have that, we've got the local pub, it's pretty horrible. Well, they had one in um, Farnborough, mm. were, you near, were you near Farnborough? Yeah, pretty close. So there was one there, which, but maybe it was done by the time, because you you're a bit younger than me, it was called the Tumble Down Dick, and that used to have like an alt night. Our local venue was in Guildford, it was the boiler oh, room. Okay, yeah. yes, the boiler room, and then they, before the boiler room there was a place called The Loft, I think, in Guildford, they used uh, to yeah. do an alternative night, and there was an alternative night in Woking, called Schism. Sick. I'm doing metal horns right now, everyone. We used to either play, we didn't do that many shows, we did a few shows in the ballroom and then like a few shows at the Railway Inn in Winchester. Those were like our local ones. But also like Wedgwood Rooms in Portsmouth is pretty local for us. Yeah. But Hampshire, especially where I'm from, is kind of where you go to retire or to like get your kids. Because it's like I lived like a to walk away kids. from the school, so it was like pretty convenient. 
But mm. going back there now as like a 20 year old, it's, I'm 21, so I'm 21 the other day. Oh yeah, congrats. Thank you, I made it this Happy far. Happy birthday. Um, yeah, there's not, there's not a lot going on. So but I mean, of... wearing nail varnish as a man in Hampshire <laughs> and having long hair, like yeah. you, you, would, you would get looks at in shops. Mm. Like I remember there was a time when I lived in Surrey where I thought, <laughs> I, thought I thought I was like the height of cool, but I had this Deftones hoodie. That no, is pretty, cool. pretty cool. And I refused to take the hood down. And I didn't realize there was this, actually, there was a local record shop that was amazing in Camden. It's still there, um, called the Rock Box. And they used to, the people behind the counter, before I got to know them, used to know me as Hood Girl. Mm. So I think I was like That's thinking that worse. I was being super alt and like aggressing this like boring town. I'm going to wear my hood up in summer. And I'd go into the record shop thinking I was so badass, like, I'm like basically a member of Slipknot right now. And they'd just be like, hood girl's back. Uh, I, ha I still have it, which is funny. Like, I spend most of my time here nowadays, I say, and I'm comfortable. And then I'll go home and I'll be walking down the street and I'll go to Sainsbury's to buy some like hair dye or something. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I'll be walking down the aisle like, why is everyone staring at me? Like, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel so strange? And I'm barely even that ridiculous. Like, I've just got like weird hair and a bit of nail varnish. And I, I feel really self-conscious around that area because it's just like, I don't know where you go to retire or go to school and then you don't stay there anymore if you're 20. Like, In um, the last day of our tour with Tudor around Europe, we um, played in Hamburg and everyone was like going out to have a big party in Hamburg. But we had to drive back to the UK the day after, so we had to do a bit of the drive that night and drove to this German town called like Sender. And we arrived at the hotel and we were like, what are these flashing lights? What's going on? This is crazy. And like all the, the locals and the people that worked at the hotel were having like a locals only hotel party. What? Um, like downstairs. And it was, cause, cause we're normally in Berlin mm. or like Hamburg or something like that. It was so strange to be in like a tiny village and just meet properly German people that don't speak any English and listen to just um, German, like euphoric pop music that's all in German and know all the words. The only one we knew was like, balloons. They did that one, but I think everything else was like hilarious and so German and so good. And we kind of walked in and I was wearing my like ridiculous ladies suit where I have an incredibly offensive bulge. And we walked in and just, everyone was sitting around these tables like, all around the room, not really having that much fun. And Frank and I and my brother was there as well. Just, you know, started doing a little dance, pretty ridiculous dance. And then a couple of like old ladies came over and joined in and having such a good time. And a man started to remove us until like the main boss realized like, wait, these kids are bringing the fun. And he came over to us and was like, you guys have really lit this party up. Um, would you like some free beer? And they gave us free beer all night. And all we had to do was just like dance with these like really lovely old ladies and pretend like we knew the words of these German pop songs while like, Punching our arms in the air. It's amazing. And yeah, that was like one of the best nights of tour. It was like the perfect, the perfect conclusion. Got a really, really good photo with some of the ladies as well. And the one at the front is doing like a massive dab as well. <laughs> I don't know if she meant to, but she was like kneeling at the front, like dabbing. <laughs> Because um, they were like, oh, like English boys, or was your band called and whatever, like writing our band name down, like taking pictures with them. And they're like, have you ever come back to like Sender? Like, you can stay with us this hotel, like, give you a good price. And we were like, okay, great, I'll definitely let you know. Like, that party was awesome. 
And yeah, so good. Because it's so hard to find German people that don't speak any English. Like, yeah, a really refreshing treat to speak to them. And then he, he'd like try and talk to me in German and then try and talk to me in English and like struggle and then say something to his wife in German. And, and I'd be like, I, I, no, it's cool, I got it. But then he also said to me, this is one of the few things in English you could say somehow was, um, uh, yeah, if you if you dress like that, most um, most German girls think you're puff. <laughs> 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 so, I was like, okay, you know. How? how? That, that's, so that's what you can say in English. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you couldn't ask me if I wanted a beer. Like, you had to do that in German, but you can call me a puff. <laughs> In English. So this is the thing that annoys me with trying to learn, uh, trying to progress in, in a, a European language, not necessarily a foreign language, but in a European language. Because when you go to Paris, for example, yeah. and you sit down in like a, excusez-moi, je voudrais un vin rouge et le pain, and you think that you're doing so well, and they're like, Okay, yeah, so what size glass of wine do you want? Yeah. Do you want a bottle? And you're like, just humor me, indulge me, yeah. let me try, because I'm, I'm not going to learn if you just keep talking to me in English. It's, we get it. Your it's, education system was better than ours. <laughs> Why am we like make all the TV? Don't we? <laughs> <laughs> but it's either like they want to show off that they can really do it, which is like fair enough if someone came into. I worked in the shop and they came in and spoke to me in German. Spoke, tried to speak English, but they were clearly German. And I'd be like, oh, I'll speak a bit German, have fun with this be. Um, but, fair, fair point. But like, they're either doing that or sometimes you just feel like they want to make you feel bad and show you that like, you can't do it and I can. And it's, it's really difficult. But like recently, the last few times I've been to Germany, like people, you start speaking a bit of German and they do a little smile as if to say like, I know this isn't quite working out for you, but you're trying and like we appreciate that, which is like the best you can do really. And then like what you have to, well, what people, it's like when you're speaking to someone that doesn't speak that much English, you have to really appreciate, like pick your words so carefully so that you don't accidentally say some kind of really weird idiom that just won't make sense. Like, and just speak quite plainly so that people can get along and everyone can understand each other, which is, quite a skill to adapt when conversation is so fast these days. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that is sort of the other end to it, is that waiters working in a tourist area of mm. <laughs> a busy Paris well, town centre. They can't get a job there unless they can speak English. Yeah, sure. but they're probably just like, come on, fucking hurry up. I want to yeah, write your yeah. order down and move to the next table. I don't want to like fanny like. about for two hours while you try and find the right word to they're order your meal. They're just thinking like, what fucking scrams you want me? Like, just give it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're oh. all secretly from Liverpool, mate, all the French waiters. That's what I've heard anyway. Um... As, a, as someone who has, over the course of this conversation, developed a new found interest in German literature, and I, I feel like now I kind of want to go and read a bit of Rilke and I want to read a bit of Hesse. What's my entry point? You know, like, if, if I were saying, oh, you want to listen to Foles? Well, you should, uh, you should start with Holy Fire. And then, you start know, like, what? Start with Total Life, mate. Start with, to yeah, Total yeah. Life forever, fair. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking on the spot of an analogy no, that didn't good, work out. No, it's good, good one. But, but you were thinking, like, transgressive? No, yeah. Which is yeah, nice. well, yeah, um, it was, yeah. yeah. But, thinking um, transgressive, indie pals. 
What's my entry point to German literature? I would start with Hester's Siddhartha because, well, are you reading in English? Well, I mean, I, I don't think that I'm going to, don't think yeah, that I'm going to okay, spend several months on Duolingo just for Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, okay, then that's different. I would go with, I started with Demian um, and I would encourage people to do so. But that might be partially because you get such a similar but great experience from each one, and that's the one I started with. But it's really it's grounded in realism a bit more than the others, and I really felt myself relating to it a lot more because Siddhartha is just like a completely different climate, and then Dostoevsky Wolf is so bonkers that you can love it, but and understand the torment, but I don't know, Demian really felt very personal to me. And it also was from you know, a very important time in my life when I was reading that and writing all our record and everything, so I would always lean towards that one if I were to suggest something. So Demian's more just like a novel. Like you can get a taste for the writing, you can get a taste for for the author's style. Yeah, it's it's where I learned to, well, really appreciate, yeah, really appreciate his style and become acquainted with his structure. And, oh, it's hard for me to say why I love it so much. It's, I don't know, it was so, so, he meets a character called Max Demian and I've had so many experiences in my life, like far too many, when I've been completely enamored or amazed by one person. I want to spend all my time like dedicated to them because the way they think is, seems to be beyond me and that's, that just really captures me because I'm always like seeking someone that's like properly remarkable. So that's what happens. And then someone finds like a true sense of self through meeting that person, which is kind of all any of us really want to do. So that's why I'd recommend it. That's such a good recommendation maybe, though. Maybe that's why I'm just like such a hopeless romantic that it just like gets in brief crap relationships because I just always want to like deify each person that I meet because I've witnessed all these like buildings of romance about you know, people finding themselves through others. So that's what I'd go for because you know, now I'm fairly happy because that's something that I saw and kind of found. I just want to give you a hug to end. <laughs> I didn't laugh when I finished that sentence, I know, you see. I'm so proud of you. What a journey we've had. A big thank you to Ben for sitting down and having a chat with me straight after recording that podcast. I went out and I bought a Herman Hesse book and a Rilke book as well. So it had a huge influence on me and I hope you found it inspiring too. Don't forget you can follow us at Best Fit Music on Twitter. You can follow me at Jen Long and Blind Avon's debut album That's Your Lot is out now. And that is your lot. Come back next week. We are going to be talking to Arnie from the vaccines, all about something that happened in Iceland in the 1940s. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. And we'll see you soon. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> <laughs>